This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm excited to reintroduce you to Lynn Hightower. Lynn is the author of numerous thrillers, including the Sonora Blair and Lena Paget detective series. Her internationally best-selling novels have been included in the New York Times list of notable books, the London Times bestseller list, the, the W.H. Smith Fresh Talent Awards, and the Seamus Award. She also teaches master novel classes in the UCLA Extension Writing Program and works as a manuscript consultant writing coach for novelists. She joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about her career and latest book, The Beautiful Risk. Welcome back to Uncorking a Story, Lynn. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have you here. And just remind me, Lynn, where does your story as an author begin? When I was in the fifth grade, living in Richmond, Virginia, and instead of doing history and geography and math, I was working on my first novel. Your and first novel in fifth grade? My first novel in fifth grade is called Karen McDonald and the Mystery of the Haunted Castle. Sounds like me, doesn't it? <laughs> and my teacher discovered what I was up to, and she was actually quite lovely. The schools in Richmond, Virginia are very good, and they're very strict, and they have very high academic standards, which I just sloughed off and didn't worry about. Um, but she asked permission to read it, and I said, okay. And she was very nice about it. She didn't say she read it, and she brought it back to me, and she said, this is such lovely, excellent work. I am so proud of you. I know you will be a novelist one day. Would you like to write a serial story for a class newspaper that we can put together? And that's what we did. She did that. I won't say just for me. It was for the whole class. But she said she'd been thinking about it. And what she wanted me to do was have an episode and an ongoing story for our weekly newspaper which I think is just the most wonderful thing a teacher could do. That is, you know, that encouragement, I think, is so important. And coming at such a young age as well, that mm -hmm. uh, must have put a lot of wind in your sails. 
It did, but you know, <laughs> I naturally had a lot of wind in my sails. I was absolutely sure that I was fabulous. I mean, I had to become an adult to go, hey, wait a minute, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but at that age, you know, I had a mother that was like, yes, let's buy you books. Let's get you a desk. Yeah, you still have to do the dishes. <laughs> but, you know, and um, so she said I was fabulous and I saw no reason not to believe her at that age anyway. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'm certainly with all your all your accolades and many other people think you're fabulous as well. Thank you. Did My you... dog does for sure. Well, it's kind of in their job description, right? They have to think we're pretty fabulous. Um, Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's uh, it's like the greatest thing when I come home. The only um, living creature in my house who's typically excited to see me, you know, walks on four legs and barks. So what kind of dog do you have? We have a uh, Labrador retriever. Fabulous dogs. You know, when I was a single mother with three teenagers, the only person that was glad to see me when I got home <laughs> was the dog. I had that time I had a giant golden retriever and you know, I got her when I became a single mother and she helped me raise the kids and they called her the nanny. Oh, that must have been mm -hmm. hard when uh, she crossed over the Rainbow Bridge, I imagine. It was crushing. Yeah. Yeah, we had a Golden, too. Uh, the Golden was named Riley. She was with mm -hmm. us. She was 16 years when she finally, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, transitioned, as they say. And, yeah. uh, you know, she she was a fighter. She did not want to go. <laughs> she just loved the family oh, so much. Oh, was I've just seen like that. Hanging yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're the best. They're just the best. It, I think they really. I have no no offense to Murphy if he can hear me, but um, yeah, golden. There's nothing like a golden retriever. Yeah. Well, actually, now I have German shepherds. Oh yeah, I have to say they are the most extraordinary dogs. They're more of a lifestyle than a dog. Okay, <laughs> because they're very intense and very intelligent, and their connection with you is so incredible. And the dog I wrote about in the book, Leo. The shepherd was my shepherd, Leo. Okay, he was real, and everything I wrote about him in the book was true. But boy, he was a handful. I can, I can imagine. Um, so it seems like even in that first book you were talking about in fifth grade, there was kind of a, a, a supernatural or horror component to it. Is that right? Yeah, it was a haunted castle. A haunted <laughs> castle. So where does where does this fascination with haunted castles and and that kind of stuff come come from for you? Oh, I just think it's so intriguing, the unknown, and that it lurks all around us. And some of it is so very beautiful and cool, right? And some of it is quite terrifying and quite scary. And uh, I just can't leave it alone. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? It's, it's fun to think about, you know, because it's, uh, it's mm -hmm. mysterious, right? It's, it's perfect fodder for, for storytelling. It really is. And, you know, having lived in at least two haunted houses, you can say this isn't real all you want, but it's happening in my house and I'm not loving it. Right. I'm going to write about it for sure. Do I want to live with it? Not so much. So so lightning struck twice with you with haunted houses then. It did. It did. But so, I, uh, I try to be more careful. <laughs> So how does that happen? I mean, was it something that followed you from one house to another, or was it just luck of the draw? No, one house was in a historic area that was just full of haunted places. 
And after I lived there a month, I went down in the basement and I found a jar of holy water. And I'm like, oh, this can't be good. <laughs> and we didn't live there very long, luckily, because it was a very dark, whatever was there was very dark. And I remember uh, after I moved out about two years later, I got someone that came in over my website and they said, hey, I, I understand that you used to live in this house and I love your books. And can you tell me why there's a jar of holy water in the basement? And I'm like, okay, let's talk. <laughs> Did you ever have to use the holy water? No, I left it alone. Okay. I picked it up, put it down and said, I'm not going to mess with it. I'm not going to get rid of it. I'm just going to leave it here. And now I'm going to be worried why they had it. Yeah. Why they had it there, you know. And it was a very uh, haunted place. You know, the dogs would not come in the bedroom. I would come home and find all the lingerie pulled out of the drawers and in the floor, which wasn't nice. Which wasn't fun. No. And, uh, you know, there were booming noises at night. It seemed to come from nowhere. <laughs> and my husband would just, you know, we'd wake up and I'd go, what is that? And he says, he was French. He would say, I don't know. And he'd roll over and go back to sleep. I'm like, no. And he'd say, what do you want me to do? I said, well, could you run around in circles and panic with me? He says, I have to get up early. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Yeah. The French not known for their backbones, you know. Mm -mm. Oh, no. He had plenty of backbone. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, he had I'm plenty kidding. of backbone. He just didn't care. No. It was just like, I'm sorry, whatever this is, it's not going to be my problem. I have to get up early. <laughs> Got to go to work. Yeah, he wasn't scared of it at all. He just took it in stride, which I found really bizarre. Well, what can you share with us about The Beautiful Risk? The Beautiful Risk uh, is set in Annecy, France, which is my favorite place in the entire world. And uh, it opens with Junie Lagarde who has been a widow for nine months. Her French husband um, died in a small plane crash on Mount Blanc. What fascinates me about Mount Blanc is that it's the most dangerous mountain in the world. It's not the tallest. It's not the most difficult to climb, although it can be formidable. It's just more people die there than anywhere else in the world. And she gets a call from a police captain in France and who says, uh, we have some drone footage to show you because her hearing dog, Leo, was with her husband in the crash. And he pulled her husband out and then he took off when the uh, rescue people came and he disappeared into the mountain terrain. And she went, she couldn't find him. She's devastated. And he says that we have drone footage that the wolves are coming back, right? And they're going after farm animals and they get footage of watching to see and tracking them. And he said, we've got drone footage of a man who looks like he's dressed like your husband, trying to impersonate your husband. We know he cannot be your husband. And he is holding your dog on a leash. Can you look at this footage and tell us if you know this man? So... She looks at it and she knows, no, it can't be her husband, but he's wearing her husband's coat that disappeared from his office six months before he died, and he's got her dog. And so what the captain tells her is, well, we have determined that this uh, plane crash was sabotage. We're investigating. And she says, I'm coming to France. I'm coming to get my dog. 
All right. And that's where that's where it goes. You know, that's where it begins. That's where it begins. This guy is very scary. He was obsessed with her husband and now he's obsessed with her. Oh, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. How did the story come to you and, and when did it come to you? Oh, my goodness. Um, You know, I love France, and I wanted to set a story in France, and um, my husband had died, and I wanted to write about that um, because, you know, I don't follow the grief rules. I annoy everyone, which, you know, is one of my skill sets. And um, I refuse to be Widow Barbie. And... um, (laughs) Was was did Mattel ever come out with a widow Barbie? I don't know, but if they did, it wouldn't be me because I'm not doing it the way they tell you to do it. And I wanted to write about that because what I found was that grief brings the most incredible creative fire. All righty. And I wanted to spend time in France and COVID had hit and I couldn't go. So I'm like, well, I'm going to let my character, Jenny Lagarde, go. I'm going to give her the same hearing loss I have, which I always kept very secret. And I thought, all right, out of the closet. She's got a hearing loss like I do. She's got a hearing dog like I do. She isn't me. I only wish I was Jenny Lagarde. I think she's so cool. I love her. And um, it was very therapeutic to write because she went to France. She dealt with enormous danger. You know, what I really wanted to do was just escape. I wanted to write this adrenaline-fueled, firing-all-cylinders heroine, right, with her fabulous dog, and she's back to the wall, and the things she does to survive are jaw-dropping, and revenge, oh yeah, which was great fun. And she's got her dog, but, you know, it's kind of like the first John Wick movie, except the dog wins. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And the dog absolutely wins. And the dog is based on my own Leo, yeah. who was just that uh, fabulous. Yeah. So uh, writing really helped you through a, a very um, difficult period of your life, it sounds. It, it feels like my path of survival because I didn't have to live in the real world. I was writing better than I've ever written before. I had a whole lot of opinions on grief. I had a whole lot of opinions on hearing loss, and I had so much fun because, you know, Junie Lagarde would say things I'd never say. Well, I might say them now. She's such a good role model. Uh, and she was so uncompromising, you know, and, and I loved that. And it was lovely to write about Leo. And if she's in France, I'm in France, right? So it just felt like I was walking right behind her, living through the book. And that was where I wanted to be. You know, oftentimes we think about writing as an escape for readers, which of course it is. It is. But writing is also an escape for writers. It's the ultimate escape. If you think reading is an escape, write a novel. I think everybody should be writing a novel. I think it's one of the most fabulous things a human can do to have a wonderful life. You don't have to if you don't want to. But I encourage everyone to write a novel. It is therapeutic. It does give you perspective. But it's also just fun. To, I don't want to live in the real world 24 hours a day. I want to live in the novel. And I want to tell myself the story I wish someone would tell me. Yeah. And I want it to be a fun escape. 
Well, that's that's a good litmus test, right? Is this a story you would want to read? And, exactly. Yeah. This to me is the ultimate story. I would I would love to pick up a book like that, you know, and get lost in it. That's yeah. my litmus test, yeah. And this idea of like grief fueling the writing process. I, I lost my brother earlier this summer. And I'm very sorry. Uh, I lost they, a brother too. You know? Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, just, uh, you know, horrible, you know, cancer yeah. is a stupid jerk, which is what I'll say about that. Yeah. Um, which is what that was one of his catchphrases. Like whenever he would cough, um, he would just say stupid jerk. So I've I got this, I've got this idea in my head that cancer is a stupid jerk and I'm going to do something with that someday. But. You should, you should. Uh, for me, and I think for a lot of people, you find, uh, you will find that grief fuels a creative fire that's thrilling. Nobody tells you that aspect of it. You know, they say, oh, it's this, it's that. You have six weeks to get through it and you should go take tango lessons and it'll all be fine. And then it's all such big fat lies. Right. I can tell you about grief is a big fat lie. And mostly what they tell you is to make everybody around you feel better. Yeah. But what I'm what I'm thinking about is almost like exploring and just reflecting on that time when he yes. was when he was sick and struggling and the lessons that he taught me by going through that process. And which are which are, I imagine, poignant and so important. Yeah. Just like conversations we had. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Up until like the very, very, very end. And um, just like reflecting on those. And I, I want to do something with that in a very respectful way. You know, through mm -hmm. fiction, not not necessarily, you know, a memoir fiction, or something like that. But um, fiction will give you a little bit of distance. Yeah. And you know what I found was that my character would say things, and I would be revising it and saying, "Well, I don't remember writing that, but it's so true." It was like she gave voice to things that I couldn't hadn't quite figured out, and it really helped me. You know. And I, and I don't think going through something like this is what people think. I think there's a lot of, oh, I hate to say the gifts of grief, but that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. It's not I mean, a phrase I love. <laughs> I interviewed a, a therapist years ago who wrote a book called um, Grief is Good. And, but it kind of reflecting on like the lessons grief can teach us and how to reframe certain things so, so that they are positive. Um, I think it's I think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating. And I I prefer I mean, there's also a lot of humor. I mean, the things that people say to you when you're newly bereaved are such a train wreck sometimes. I, I find that hilarious. And if I read any articles on grief, that's what I want to look. What awful things did people say to you? Oh, that's right. Because they don't mean to. And I'm not mad at them for saying it. But the things they say are just they're so bad. Oh, I, I agree. And I think people just feel obligated to to say something when they, they really don't have to say anything at all. There's, there's no, really not I, much to say. I agree with you. I think what they feel obligated to do is fix it for you. And you can't fix grief. I had to learn that the hard way. And so really, the best thing to me is just, I'm so sorry. That's all you need. But I'm not mad at people. But you know what my favorite one was that someone said to me at my husband's funeral? A woman says to me, why is everybody talking to you and ignoring me? And I'm like, gee. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm just like, there was a part of me that loved it. There was a part of me that was like, I could not have made that up. That is so good. I'm going to have to use that in a book somewhere. Thank you. 
That's a special form of narcissism right there. I know. That's like, oh, say you could be a total character. <laughs> no, it is. And it's like some people would be like, oh, you know, you just need your distractions. And I would be like, you know what? I don't want distractions. Like, I want to feel what I'm feeling because oh, what so I'm feeling, smart. you know, what I'm feeling is normal. Like, I should be missing my he was one of my closest friends. Right. So I was like, I should be missing him. I should feel sad about this. Why right. would I want to mask that? Because that all that's going to do is, you know, have me lash out at somebody, you know, later it's on when I. It also means you miss out on the um, things you figure out while, you know, I honestly am the only person I know that gets up early to think. <laughs> it sounds really ridiculous, but I do because when someone you love dies, you have a lot of things to think about and to process. And I refuse to follow the meditation rules because they don't work for me. And I'm not going to sit cross-legged and hold my hands up because I find that incredibly uncomfortable and annoying. And you can't drink coffee when you're doing that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I don't try and clear my mind because I think that means you're wrestling with the brain and it's humanly impossible to clear your mind. Why do they tell you that? It's so stupid. Unless it works for you, in which I say, go for it. Um, and I just let the thoughts go and come a million miles a minute or be quiet or be still. But you be still and and sit with it. And I think it's so crucial to do that if you can bear it. And I think it was very smart of you to do that. And you're right. People don't want you sitting and thinking. And I didn't want to see anybody or talk to anybody or go anywhere. And that makes people uncomfortable. So basically, I would say, okay, I'm blocking you. You can't call me, text me, email me. And if you come to the door, they won't hear it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got pretty ruthless. Yeah, I found myself sleeping a lot. And, yeah. um, you know, it's someone, exhausting, you know, it is. And it's like, it's physically and mentally and, um, and, yeah, and it, it hits you at weird times, but it's like my body just needed rest. And, you know, and somebody was like, you know, you're sleeping a lot. I'm concerned. I'm like, well, I'm like, I it's, can't help it. I'm like, it's, well, it's, you're sleeping a lot. I'm concerned. How about you're sleeping a lot? Good for you. Right. Because like, you know what? Here's the thing. When you're grieving, you know what you need. And nobody else does. And we have a world full of people who say, now, listen, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't keep all their stuff. Hey, I've got a drawer full of my husband's old socks and nobody's taken them away from me. And if people don't like it, well, just, oh, well, go live your life, right? And, um, and the things they think you should do, if they don't work for you, just say, no, go away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You needed the sleep. It's wonderful that you got it. Yeah. And I have a kind of a general rule of thumb, which is you should never wake up somebody when they're sleeping. Like, if I, love some, that. It's a good, I think it's a good rule. I, I wish people would obey it. Um, I do too. But it's like if somebody, and I, I remember when I was, when my, so we have triplets, when they were babies, they were premature. Oh my goodness. And yeah. they, they did not sleep well. So one day, this is probably, I don't know, eight months in when they when they had started putting on weight and they were kind of out of the woods. One of them slept till like 10 o'clock in the morning, which is unheard of. And we got nervous. We're like, yeah. oh, this baby's usually up at 630. Yeah, so we shake her to make sure that she's OK. So we shake her and she's not waking up, but she's breathing and, you know, she's not blue. And we shake her, we shake her. And then she opens her eyes and just starts bawling. And I tell the story to, it was either my mother or my mother-in-law. And she like smacks me and is like, 
you never wake up a sleeping baby. Like, what's the matter with you? Why would you do such a thing? Well, well sometimes you have to live through it because you were scared for your baby. But yeah, the baby was outraged. I was getting a really good sleep. Yeah. And you woke me up. So why would you do that? And if she could speak, she'd probably say that. Why the hell did you just do that, you stupid, Absolutely. stupid she was man? Speaking. She was speaking in cries and she was saying it very firmly. <laughs> Uh, what is that picture over your right shoulder? What is that? Is that a, what's that painting of? Oh, it's just a um, it's just a bistro in France. Oh, you know when I go to France, everybody has on their walls Marilyn Monroe, the Big Apple, New York, New York T-shirts that say "Hello," <laughs> like oh my god. And here I have T-shirts that say "Bonjour." Bonjour. And I have. You know, places in France or pictures I've taken in France. It's uh, I think there's a very ongoing love affair between the French and and the Americans. And of course, we don't always get along. Um, but secretly, the French think we're very cool, and we know the French are very cool. So you know, my husband was always so funny because in the U.S., if people criticize France, he wasn't going to listen to it. But when we were in France, if people criticized Americans, he would jump on them so hard and they would never do it again. Really? Uh, yeah, I kind of loved that when he would do that. If somebody said something snarky about Americans, he would go, no, you do not say that about Americans. And then he would explain to them why they were idiots. And I would be like, wow, this is so cool. <laughs> A very cool. I've only been to France once. I was on a yeah. business trip. It was like 48 hours and oh, I was working. Yeah, this is back in 1999. I was um, working in a, in a startup situation and me and the owner, he's like, you know, Mike, we're going to do uh, Paris by motor scooter. I'm like, and I am not what you would call adventurous. And he, or at least I wasn't at that point in my life. And he's like, no, we're going to rent these Vespa scooters. We're going to go all around the city. And I'm like, when I'm going to be in the back of yours, he's like, no, we're going to get our, you're going to get your own. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So it's terrifying. Actually. It was, it was terrifying. I mean, just going through the streets of Paris on these scooters and then it started to rain. Of course. And I'm like, oh, we're, we're going to die. We are not going to live. Mm -hmm. But we, we stopped off to get a baguette. I mean, what's more French than this to get yeah. a cup of coffee and a baguette, like outside right. of, you know, Notre Dame. And, um, and these these American girls come up to us and they're like talking English very slowly as if as if we, you know, they're like, can you tell us how to get to the metro? And I just look at Nick. I'm like, I could do this like I could I could improv this scene and and, you know, take advantage of this situation. But the angel on my shoulder won out over the devil. And I said, look, we're American, too. Like, and we gave them directions. <laughs> because they really but, did need to get to the metro. But I don't know if it was because we had, you know, the scooters, the helmets, the having the baguette. I mean, I don't know. But it was that well, was funny. It is. And I uh, I don't I don't go to Paris. You know, I go to Annecy or Metz or someplace that's not huge. OK, because Paris is. Robert hated Paris. He would say, this is not France. This is not France. This is not really France, you know, and. Uh, and I do like the smaller cities. I do love Annecy because they speak enough English there and I speak enough French that I'm okay. And they're very easy going there, you know? It's a very 
it's just full of people from everywhere. And it's, uh, to me, it's just the perfect place. Very peaceful. Very pretty. Well, one of the ways I like to get to know my guests a little bit more is mm-hmm. through asking a couple of questions around pop culture. So, Lynn, I am very curious. When you were growing up, back yes. in the day, yeah. things you lo- used to watch on TV, what did you like to watch? All the spy shows. The Man from Uncle. The Girl from Uncle. Um, gosh, Cornet Blue. That was just a short one, but Frank Converse was in it. And he was so handsome. And, uh, oh, gosh, you know, um, you know, all the British spy shows. I watched all of those, and it was absolutely my goal to be a spy. I you wanted, wanted to be a, to spy. be a spy? So bad I wanted to be a spy. What happened? You, you didn't get a chance to go to spy school? or? Well, you know, um, I talked to a friend about it who was in intelligence work. And I said, I, I think I should do this. And he says, no, you don't. I said, why? He said, all right. Are you going to do what people tell you? If I agree. Right. Uh, do you have any sense of direction? Uh, no, I can get lost in the backyard. Right. Um, will you just swear that you are your allegiance to this organization, and if you need to betray your friends and family, you will? I certainly will not. And they said, yeah, that's three strikes. You're out. You can't go to spy school. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently, I'm too opinionated to be a spy. No spy school for you. I think it's not all that's cracked up to be either. Um, I know, don't imagine think it's, it it's not like it's not like Ian Fleming made it seem. You know, the books uh, he wrote were a little more realistic. I liked his novels. I mean, the James Bond movies are fun and fantasy, but the novels were a little more interesting. But uh, the the last book by John le Carre, um, it really talked about the dark side. And how the things that the operations they did were actually turned out made things worse and hurt a lot of people. And I mean, I the first time I read that book, I just put it down and picked it up and read it again because and, and he, you know, I don't think he didn't want that published until after he died. Um, but I thought that was very good insight. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be a spy. Well, I'm right about it. There you go. Yeah. What about music? What do you like listening to? The Beatles, the Beatles, the Beatles, the Beatles. I was absolutely insanely in love with John Lennon and everything was the Beatles for me. Nothing but nothing but the Beatles all day long. Nothing but the Beatles. It was like the music I had waited to hear all of my life. And I wanted nothing but the Beatles. I just interviewed an opera singer. She was a professional opera singer. Uh, Has to be in her late 70s, early 80s now. But her her younger sister was so into the Beatles. They went to the, the the Shea Stadium, one of the Shea Stadium shows. Yeah. And she's like, you know, I didn't really love the music, but you couldn't hear it anyway over the screaming no, of because, everybody. But I thought the screaming was fun. Like, yeah. it was like, you just go and you just scream head off. And I liked, you know, go-go boots and straight long blonde hair and all of those things. I was really little, so I couldn't really go and do the cool stuff. Um, but I wanted to so bad. I wanted to so, and of course, I wanted to go to London and live my life there. Right. Um, do you have a favorite place where you like to read? Hmm. Pretty much everywhere because I read a lot. So my favorite places just change. Wherever I am at that moment is where I like to read. I, I, you know, what I do love to do is to just to go out to dinner with a book and get a glass of wine. And- get something nice to eat. And I find it so interesting that 
someone always wants to talk to me about the book I'm reading. Interesting. Yeah. I did it in New York and, and the whole table next to me, they just all leaned over and said, we don't want to interrupt you, but we love that author. And I was doing research for a book on uh, when the body says no. And the, the whole wait staff comes to my table and they're like, we think we need that book. We think that book will help us feel better. Can you tell us about it? And the, I mean, these are young, young ones, right? And then getting out their phones and taking pictures of it and their author. And I told them why I thought it might be helpful for them. It just shocks me how many people are so fascinated by the book you're reading. Interesting. And does that annoy you when that happens? or, or... Never, never, <clears throat> never. Because it's always so kindly meant. It's one reader to another. Hey, is that cool? Did you love this? Did you love that? And 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 the really younger ones, you know, they're some of them haven't read a lot. I had I had some coffee shop guy come and say, Can I sit down a minute? I said, sure. He says, My girlfriend reads all the time. And now I'm reading. And I had no idea how cool this is. Do you have some books you can recommend to me? And I'm like, sure. Let's talk about what you like to read. I love that. Yeah, that's great. I don't I, know. I'm evidently some kind of a, you know, beacon for anybody who wants to read. Yeah, they, they probably sense it in you that you're a writer. They probably, something probably gives it away. Who knows? Who knows? Well, speaking about writing, is, do you have a favorite place where you like to write? Um, Two places. Uh, I get up very early in the morning for an early morning writing session, 3, 4 a.m. Um, that's just fairly new when I started writing The Beautiful Risk and take Puppy out real quick, get a cup of coffee, and then we run and jump back in the bed together, and then she goes to sleep. She loves these early morning writing sessions. And nobody bothers you at 4 a.m. The world is quiet and dark and a little bit mysterious. And I'll do three or four hours. And then I have a, there's a Ukrainian coffee shop, uh, the Brevede Coffee Company in the distillery district. And it's just in an old whiskey warehouse. And uh, it's got big high ceilings. It's got a lovely ambiance and they make fabulous coffee. And they're so nice to me there, you know, because I have this hearing loss, right? And they would always call out the order, and I would always be writing. And A, I wouldn't hear them, and B, I'd be writing. And one day they came to my table and they said, you never come get your coffee, and we're worried you don't like it. I said, no, no, no. I love your coffee. I just, I never hear you when you call it out, and I'm always deep in a scene, and just, it's just my weird, quirky. They said, oh, okay. And so now they don't call it out. They just bring it to me, which is Oh, that's kind of nice. nice. That's is. nice. Yeah. And then lastly, if if this is my uh, dear younger me question, if you could go back in, in time or, or maybe send a letter to that, you know. Oh, send a letter. Lynn. That's so cool. Yeah. So send a letter and send a letter to that that girl in fifth grade who's writing that first novel. What mm -hmm. would you tell her? I would say keep writing your novel. Move to France as early as possible. Right after high school, try and study there or right after college, get there as quick as you can. Always have a giant German shepherd. And make decisions purely by intuition. That's purely by intuition. Mm -hmm. Purely by intuition. The older I get, the more I realize that. I mean, I think things through up one side, down the other. I'm a big overthinker. And then I'm like, yeah, my gut instinct says this. And that's always the way to go. Trust the instincts. Absolutely.
There you go. Well, Lynn, this has been a fun conversation. I assume people can buy The Beautiful Risk wherever books are sold. Is that right? Wherever books are sold. And you can also go to my website, which is lynnhightower.com. The website and the name are just the same. And there will be uh, descriptions of the book, pictures of the book, and um, a really fun video with the dog that stars in the book, which is cool. I love that video, that dog. And it's links to anywhere you want to buy a book. There are just like eight links and you pick where you want to buy a book and you can click and go. There you go. I'll be sure to put your website in our show notes so people could just tap on it and uh, go right Thanks. there. Thanks. Uh, Lynn, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.